Welcome to Standing at the Edge. I'm your host, Casey Stratton. It's episode four. Episode four. I can't believe I'm doing this. It's been really cathartic for me to be telling my story and just to be talking and sharing what's been going on in my life over the last few years. And I've really enjoyed your comments and messages about the podcast and how it's helping you process things or that you feel like you're talking to a friend. I love that kind of feedback. It's great. I really enjoy this and I'm really glad that you're along for the journey. So thanks for being here. What's going on in the world? Still, of course, a global pandemic, and I don't see that ending anytime soon, especially in the United States, because now we are hitting daily new cases that are higher than ever, and yet people are acting like nothing is wrong and going back to regular life, and I'm trying, really trying to understand it. I know, I know personally, obviously, the stories I've been telling you guys, denial is a big thing. I mean, it ha it's... It's intense, and I think it's hard sometimes to see. I'm just really afraid that the consequences are going to be so dire that everyone's going to start really being personally affected by COVID-19 with those around them. I just had a, a doctor's appointment today, actually, with my cardiologist, and I got the all clear. said that my, my heart should be working just fine. There were no changes on my EKG. Um, he feels the fact that I can walk three miles a day without symptoms means that my heart is functioning well. But I asked him like about COVID-19 and going back to an office space at some point. And he basically told me that there's not enough information. We're all learning as we go. And he really had trouble giving me any concrete advice, except that I need to wear a mask. I need to socially distance and I need to wash my hands. Um, but he said, I need to make choices. Uh, he thinks we're all going to brush up against COVID-19 at some point because there's no vaccine. So, I mean, the hope was that it would be a slow and steady burn of this thing so that the American healthcare system, which is a joke in and of itself, could keep up. But now it's just looking like cases are skyrocketing uh, and it's just not looking good. You look at places like Florida, Arizona, Texas, it's, it's grim. And even here in Michigan, where I am, cases are rising again. In Grand Rapids, where I live, they just moved our risk level back a notch. I mean, which is a bad thing, like we were progressing toward a lower risk level and now it's back to phase three, it's called. So just really, really difficult to process and navigate and there's still protesting happening and there's still arguing and lots of arguing online and lots of uncomfortable conversations, lots of talk about what is privilege and understanding that privilege doesn't mean your life wasn't hard. It just means that your life isn't harder because of certain things. So if you are white, you have an inherent privilege because of the way our society was constructed. If you are straight, you have an inherent privilege. It doesn't mean that you didn't come from humble beginnings or that you haven't worked for what you've gotten, but we are not. This is what I say to my staff, and I don't know if I've said this before on this podcast. If I have, forgive me, but I don't think I have. I tell my staff, we need to understand that we're all running the same race, but we don't have the same starting line. That's just the way it is. There are certain identities that we carry when you again we're talking about intersectionality how we carry multiple identities at the same time and all of those things put together of who we are is how society sees us and treats us accordingly so there are varying degrees of all these things of course but the starting line is not the same for everyone and again if you are like of someone who believes in a meritocracy where hard work will prevail, the statistics don't really bear that out. So I would really hope that you would just take a good look at like what actually happens in America. And it's not because people are lazy. And I'm just going to leave it at that for this week. But just a lot of conversation. And it's really, it's exhausting. And it's real. The way people are feeling. There's trauma 
all over the place and it's just it's a lot to take in and now we're hearing that there's potentially another flu pandemic that or a flu that could become a pandemic that they've identified in China so I'm keeping my eye on that I'm just like is this happening like I just it's so much to take in at once to think that we're living through this time and I just keep feeling I have these moments of cynicism where I'm just like mother nature has said enough of all y'all and you're pollution and all the stuff just i'm taking it back so we'll see what happens but keep my eye on all those things and here in america we have the july 4th holiday coming up so i'm very concerned when we have such high cases and now we've got another big holiday because after memorial day things weren't great so this i'm just afraid i said on twitter today like is this going to be memorial day on steroids we'll see anyway this week we're going to talk about the stuff that happened after my heart attacks, after I met Kurt, and how things played out. The good, the bad, the ugly. My identity was shaken and shifted in both really positive and really negative ways. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Let's dig in. Kurt and I had our first date on June 25th of 2018, and like I said last week, instant connection, we just really hit it off. We became super inseparable after that, and uh, his friend had bought a boat, so he, on July 3rd, which is about a week after we first started seeing one another, his friend had just bought a boat, so they were on Lake Michigan. And I was at home and the, for the few a few days I had not felt great. So that day I was out on my walk and I just felt something felt really off. I felt dizzy. I just didn't I didn't feel good at all. I started having chest pains. So I had to call a friend, my best friend Holly, and have her come take me to the emergency room. Ironically, she had also met someone new around the same time that I met Kurt. And so that's how I met him. He drove me to the hospital to the emergency room and Holly went in with me and he I can't remember. I think he stayed in the waiting room or maybe he even didn't even come in. I don't remember, but that was the first time I met him. I mean, I was in a bit of a trauma situation, so my memories aren't super clear. But I remember uh, getting to the hospital, to the ER, and then I was very much prioritized. And you always sit in an ER bed for a while before you get admitted. But I did get admitted, and the next day... Oh, I'm sorry. This must have been July 2, July 2nd, I get admitted. Uh, July 3rd. I had an, another heart catheterization. So I had just on June 21st had the catheterization that showed the th- stuff that was wrong with my stent and a new stent was put in its place. And then on July 3rd, I had another one. So th- this is my third heart catheterization at this point. But on the second, I'm in the hospital. I know I'm getting admitted. I'm texting Kurt, but he doesn't really have signals. So I'm like very rarely hearing back from him. So then I get his friend's cell phone because he has better reception so I get his phone number and I'm texting that number kind of giving updates and Kurt's like texting me saying honestly I don't know how to handle this if I'm gonna be really honest with you like we haven't been dating very long I don't know what should I be doing should I be coming home immediately and I was like no just you know when when you guys dock the boat and you get back to town you know if you want to you can come to the hospital 
So he did. Kurt got there about nine o'clock at night. Uh, that was the first time he met my mom. So that was interesting. We met in the cardiac unit. Uh, and I had this beautiful room actually that had this like atrium outside the window. And so that was very comforting. But he stayed overnight in the hospital with me. He slept in the chair right next to me. And I would be woken up a lot because they take your vitals and stuff. If you've ever been hospitalized, you know how hard it is to sleep because you're getting poked and prodded all the time. But I kept looking over at him while he was sleeping and just thinking, wow, like this is a keeper. Like we've been together a week and he's staying overnight in the hospital with me. And he would like hold my hand. I'd be in the bed. He'd be in the chair. And it was just, I don't know, there was something really endearing about it and just made me feel so much comfort. And I, I realized then that I knew that I was in love with him. Like I was certain of it. So July 3rd, I have the catheterization. Nothing's wrong. So we're just chalking it up to who knows. I've come to find out as time goes on that unfortunately for me, when I have gas pains, I tend to have them right where my heart is, like right around that area. So a lot of that chest pain is actually just my body doing its thing, but it's hard to know. And I've kind of gotten better at the distinction, but at that time, nothing was wrong, but we did go ahead and schedule the surgery to deal with my still completely blocked right coronary artery. So we scheduled that for late July, July 20 something, I don't know. And um, I got the all clear to go home on the 4th of July. So uh, we're in the hospital on the 4th of July and I go into the bathroom. They had put my IVs in my hands because I prefer that because when they put it in your elbow, it's really hard to do anything because if you bend your arm, you've got a needle in there. So uh, using your phone is difficult, eating is difficult, like even just, you know, like using the laptop to type. So I asked them to put the IVs in my hand and they did, but then what happened is when they pulled them out... I didn't realize it. I go into the bathroom, I'm getting ready, and all of a sudden there's blood just everywhere in the sink. And I realize, oh my gosh, they're still bleeding. Because of course, you know, the arteries on your hands are going to be more prone to bleed than the artery in your elbow. So I'm like, Kurt, help me. And he comes in and we're like trying to deal with the blood everywhere. And I'm like putting pressure on it. And we finally got it taken care of and I got to go home. But I had to stay in my room a little bit longer than we had hoped because we had to get the bleeding to stop. So this is like high drama, right? For the beginning of a relationship. I'm thinking, oh gosh, is he out of here? But no, we went back to my house. And again, it was 4th of July, which is the Independence Day here in the United States. And uh, fireworks were going off like crazy everywhere. And we were sitting on the couch. And I just got up the courage and I said, I know it hasn't been very long, but I'm certain of this. I love you. And he told me he loved me too. And that was that. It was a weekend. And it's been a wild ride ever since. I think we were like nine days in at that point. So we progressed through things uh, as well as we can. We're just kind of like, wow, there's a lot going on. Uh, and I'm just feeling like a handful, but I've had to get used to the fact that I am high maintenance in the health department sometimes. And so uh, instead of feeling like a burden, I try to be appreciative of the people around me and that they're giving so much and caring so much. But it's hard for me because I'm not the kind of person that likes to ask for help or get help. Generally, I like to do things on my own. I've always been very independent. So this whole experience has really changed me. But Kurt and I are doing great. I, they go in, they do the surgery for the total occlusion, it's called. And it's... It, extremely wildly successful so they put five more stents in i'll have to on my facebook page and on twitter and on instagram there's a photo of my right coronary artery before the surgery and a photo after well like an x-ray afterward and it is all of a sudden like a river is flowing and there's a train outside apologies um all of a sudden the artery is like a river and before it was just all closed off and crazy. So I have the photo, I'll have to scan it and 
put it up online for you to see with this podcast. I don't know if we can do show notes with attachments here, but um, I'll, I'll put it up on social media. So now I have eight stents, which is crazy to me that I have eight stents in my heart, but it's but so far been very successful. Today's appointment tells the tale. It's been almost two years since that happened and my heart is functioning really well. So that was great and I was really excited about it. Time's going on. We go into August, we're feeling great. Kurt's birthday is August 27th and he was gonna be up in Traverse City for a conference. So I got us a nice hotel room on the beach and we hung out up there and then came back home and celebrated his actual birthday and celebrated with my family because my sister's birthday is August 23rd. So we just kind of did a tag team and everybody's loving Kurt. My family loves Kurt, everybody loves Kurt. Um, and so I'm just feeling really good about things. Um, I'm feeling really confident. I'm looking for jobs. I'm still not really finding anything. I'm on unemployment. Um, it was just, t it's tough like where, it, like where I am as far as pay scale and things like that. There just aren't a lot of nonprofit opportunities that open up at that level. So, I mean, not to be all braggy, I'm just saying like, I don't want to go down uh, on the ladder. I, I want to climb up. I'm very ambitious. So I'm cruising around. And then in September, uh, early October, I get referred to what's called a preventative cardiologist. And the preventative cardiologist um, is someone, they, they're thinking that we need to get to the bottom of what's going on with me and my heart. So I see him and he's saying, look, on paper, this does not make sense. For you to have had two massive heart attacks and blockages of, at that scale, at your age, even with any sort of risk factors I run through this, it does not compute. So we need to run some more tests to find out what's going on. He's like, I have a feeling it's probably some sort of genetic issue. And my um, physiologist in cardiac rehab had also suspected that because she had actually done research on this drug. She had been part of the research phase in college for this drug called Rapatha, and it's an injectable drug, and you inject it every two weeks, and it helps if you have certain things going on with cholesterol or whatever's happening, but it's very specific. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. So I'm thinking, okay, even if we find that there are these genetic issues, I just inject myself every couple of weeks and I'm good to go. Like, no, like I'm all good. Like I don't have to worry. So the results come back. We had to actually send the test to the Mayo Clinic. That's how intensive a test it is. It's just not something widely tested for, but he had a suspicion. So, oh, also I should mention my grandmother, my maternal grandmother had died really young of a heart attack. I believe she was 54 when she died of a heart attack. So he was like, hmm, your family history has people dying young of heart attacks. You had a heart attack young. We gotta, we gotta run these tests. So the tests come back and sure enough, I, there's this thing called lipoprotein little a. So it's like LP parentheses, lowercase a. And the normal amount should be 30, around 30, zero to 30 in your blood. Anything 50 or higher is considered extreme high risk for cardiovascular events. So extreme high risk for heart attack, extreme high risk for stroke. So again, anything over 50 is considered extreme high risk. My number, 149. So boom, now we know what's going on, but then come to find out the injectable lowers your number by up to 30%, a third. So I'm looking at best case scenario, 100, which is still two times extreme high risk. So that hits me like a train of bricks. I am not feeling good. I go back in for the appointment for the follow-up and he says, Dr. Boyden is his name and I called him scary doctor for a long time. 
He says you have very aggressive cardiovascular disease and I think you need to become a vegan or have a plant-based diet, which there's a difference. So he says, I think your diet needs to be plant-based. I think you should do it in stages, but my recommendation is that you give up all meat, all dairy, all eggs. And I'm just like feeling like I have I not sacrificed enough and just feeling like I can't believe that even with this new medicine that I'm still gonna be at high risk all the time. I felt like I was just walking around with a target on my back or a question mark over my head. And I don't feel like that as much anymore, but I honestly don't know if that's just denial because it's been going on so long. So he says, I say, okay, well, do I have to do this or is this your recommendation? And he said, you can only do what you're comfortable with, but if I were you, I would want to live more than five to 10 more years. So I'm trying to process that. Like a doctor saying to you, if you don't make more changes, you're gonna die maybe in five years. I'm just like oh, mind blown. So I'm not in a good place. I come home, Kurt and I are talking about it. I'm just for like a solid week, just not feeling good about it at all. And ended up going on a trip to Chicago and then I had chest pain again. So I ended up in the hospital again on October 22nd. My birthday is the 16th. Uh, and had another catheterization. So what are we on now? Five? Yeah, number five. So it's just like, I'm just in a spiral. I'm just feeling like so hopeless and like I can't believe that now I'm not even gonna be able to eat cheese. Like string cheese is one of my favorite things as a snack. I like love it. So I'm just, I don't know, I'm not feeling good, honestly. Like I'm just feeling really like the world has defeated me. And people would say stuff to me, very well-meaning, like, well, I mean, anyone could die any day. Like, you could get hit by a bus. I'm like, yeah, but imagine living with the bus barreling down behind you at 60 miles an hour every day. It's not a random event. I've got the bus right behind me. And every day I'm running and running and running, trying not to have it hit me. So that's how I felt for a long time. And maybe that's victim mentality, and that's okay. I mean, that happens. It's part of the human experience, self-pity, all these things took me a while to like wrap my head around it and say, okay, I can't let this define me. But for a while it was defining me. I became like guy who's gonna die any minute. And I just started thinking like, how do I even plan for anything? Like if I if the future is so uncertain, like what's the point? It, it was just a very dark time for me. It lasted, I don't know, a month maybe. And then things got better and I started feeling better. Uh, we went to Europe actually. Kurt had never been to Europe. So uh, my friend Kat and I love to go. So I said, let's take Kurt with us. So we did. And we went to Iceland and London, Paris, Barcelona or Barcelona, should I say, and Madrid and Nice. Oh gosh, can't forget Nice. So we're in Europe. We're having a great time. Um, I'm starting to really start to learn the dynamics of our relationship, which now I'm used to, but Kurt is 11 years younger than me. So he was on his phone a lot and I kept being like, what the heck? We're in Europe. Get off your phone. But I just realized that he processes things differently and he was really enjoying it, but I wasn't seeing it as much. He doesn't show his excitement as much as I do. So I kept thinking that he just wasn't into it, but then he'd go on Facebook and be like, I think this is my favorite city I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so I guess he did have a good day. <laughs> But that's all right. I'm used to it now. So um, we're having a great time. We get to Nice and I had applied for a job at the YMCA, Y Achievers Director, which is middle and high school programs to help kids be ready, youth be ready and teens be ready for their first jobs, for their careers, to focus on 
quote unquote soft skills, 21st century skills, we call them. So um, and as you know already, spoiler alert, I got the job. But they asked me if I could do a phone interview. And I was like, well, I'm in Europe, but I guess I can swing it. So we go to lunch in Nice and I have like two glasses of wine. And then I'm on my third cocktail and I go up to this little deck that they have and I get on the phone and do my interview and I'm like oh hey just gotta say I'm across the street from the Mediterranean so if you hear a lot of traffic and stuff it's because I'm in Nice France and I'm just like looking at some palm trees while we're having this interview and I'm laughing that like I'm on a job interview with my third drink and in France and I'm just like okay this is definitely something for the books so I have the interview I think it goes really well and then like an hour later we're walking around we're buying wine and stuff uh, doing the European thing where you go from shop to shop to get what you need, which I love. And I kind of do that here in the States too. It's just kind of how I'm wired after living in New York. But um, I start really not feeling very well. And I had had this dish for lunch, which is called a brandade, which is like sm salted fish in like mashed potatoes. So it's kind of like a seafood shepherd's pie. And you, it sounds like it would be gross. And now it's definitely gross to me, but I, I thought it was really good, but it gave me food poisoning. So I spent the next evening into the next day violently, violently ill. It was terrible. I felt bad because we were in this tiny little apartment and I'm vomiting every five minutes. It was just so awful. And Kurt went out by himself and got stuff for me. Like I, I really wanted that Orangina drink. Is that what it's called? Orangina? Oh my gosh. I just, uh, that's all I craved because it's like carbonated, but not super sweet. It's not like an orange soda in the States. It's kind of a more mellow. Anyway, that doesn't matter. It was like all I wanted. I wanted that and I wanted like strawberry popsicles. When I have the stomach flu or anything like food poisoning, I'm always pretty specific about my cravings. Like I need exactly this thing to feel better. So I'm violently ill. The next day we have to drive to Barcelona and I am the only one who can drive the rental car because it is a manual a stick shift they call them here in the states and i'm the only one who ever learned how to drive one my first car was a stick shift my a few my last few cars before i got a toyota corolla were stick shifts even in the last like from 2012 up to 2015 i drove stick shifts i like to drive them but i don't like to drive them when i'm trying to recover from food poisoning so that was a long trip Anyway, we had a great time <laughs> once I felt better. We loved Spain. None of us had been to Spain before, so it was brand new to everybody. It was super great. I loved it. I loved the people. We saw one of my friends from online. It's been like a friend of mine on Facebook and LiveJournal and all these things for just years and years, but we had never gotten to meet in person. Gilles. So that was really exciting to meet him and we just had a really good time and then we came back and the day after I got back to the States I had to do like a nine o'clock in the morning interview at the Y which was fine because I was like six hours ahead in my mind so to me it was three o'clock in the afternoon but it was just a quick turnaround to come home and then have a, a job interview the next day so then I do get the job but because of how long it takes for some of the wheels to turn in these kinds of places they call me like a week before my spinal surgery to offer me the job. So here I am again, just like, it's like oh, it's these possible situations I keep ending up in. Like, do I, what do I do? Like, I can't start working. And so then I, I talk to the doctor and they're like, you need to be off work at least six weeks, but we suggest 12. And I'm like, well, that's not happening. So I'm thinking they're not going to give me the job. I'm going to tell them that I have a surgery and I can't start and they're going to be upset and rescind the offer or whatever I didn't I didn't know at the time that I was like enough of the front runner that they would have waited the full 12 weeks but I don't know so 
Against medical advice, I told them, hey, sorry, I have to have this surgery next week, but I can start on January 7th, which was only four weeks from the time I'm telling them this. And they're like, hey, start whenever, you know, whenever you need to start is fine. And I'm like, no, I can start on the 7th. And my original supervisor, Ashley Davis, who I adored and had met and known before I got the job and I just thought she was amazing. So I was so excited to work with her. She was just like, yeah, you're cool, but let's just make tentative January 7th. But if you need more time off, then you'll take it. You can start whenever. It's not a big deal. The programming was kind of in in trouble. They hadn't had a director in like five months and the programming just was kind of failing spectacularly. So I always joke that I'm the Olivia Pope of Y Achievers of Greater Grand Rapids. If you know Scandal, she was a fixer. So they brought me in to fix it and I did fix it. Um, But I did start January 7th and I was still taking Valium and muscle relaxers. Uh, Norco and um, like pain medication, muscle relaxers and Valium like off and on. Um, Just feeling like every day like was surreal, like I was in a dream. I couldn't drive so I would have to get rides or or take an Uber or whatever. And everything just, I don't know, I was faking it till I made it. I'm gonna tell you right now. I, I barely remember the first few weeks of that job. I was all over the place emotionally. I could not control my emotions at all and this is gonna bear out. At the time, I'm just thinking, well, I had surgery, so this is this must be normal. Like I had this massive surgery in my spine, so my body's just reacting, and I had a trauma, so I'm emotional. Sorry, my cat's making a lot of noise. Rosalie, you're naughty. Anyway, she just wants to look out the window, but it's noisy. Um, I'm just feeling like all out of sorts. Like somebody would send me like a nice message, and I would just bawl, just weep, burst into tears. I was like lashing out at people because I just—it was like I was a teenager again. Like my frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex, just couldn't—it couldn't regulate emotion. And I teach people how to help kids regulate their emotions, so I'm just like, why can't I do this? I'm usually very good at regulating my emotions and acknowledging them and feeling them. But this was like hyperdrive. Like every emotion was magnified like 100%. I'd be so angry or I'd be so sad or I'd be so just moved to tears by something. And it's interesting because this time is sort of like that too. Like emotions are feeling really amped up and like, you know, it's kind of exaggerated. But this was like even more so than how I'm feeling now. Um, I just couldn't. I couldn't make sense of anything and I would just sob and sob and sob and I would listen to all these pieces of music at night that made me sad and I would just cry and cry and cry and poor Kurt, here he is now dealing with this on top of everything else we've done. So we're like less than six months into our relationship and well, just a little more than six months because our half anniversary is Christmas, so it's really easy to remember. So we're just a little bit past, so we're like seven and a half months by the time this is all shaken out, seven, seven and a half, and he's putting up with already ER hospitalization, another surgery, then a surgery after that, then me finding out what's wrong, and then another surgery, and then spinal surgery, and now I'm melting down every day, constantly, 24-7. And like people who know me are like, this is not you. Like my mom kept on the phone, my mom kept saying, this is not you. What is happening? This is not you. So I end up in the emergency room again because I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm almost certain it's heart attack three. Turns out I gave myself a panic attack, and the panic attack somehow my my brain triggered the exact same symptoms as my heart attacks because our brains are sneaky like that and they like to do stuff like that to us and it's rude. So I think I'm dying. I'm literally calling like everyone and telling them I love them if I don't make it. I mean, it was intense. It was awful. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. I'm panicking in the car. I'm like, you have to drive faster. And I was fine. The doctor came in and said, you're fine. 
Uh, and it turned out that Dr. Boyd in Scary Doctor was the cardiologist on call. So he was the one I saw. And I just straight up told him, like, you freak me out. And now I'm just like, I'm totally freaked out. And he's like, well, let's look at your medications. He's like, wait, you're taking Valium after your spinal surgery? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I wish they would have looked more closely at your heart medications because there's counteracting medications here. So we take me off the Valium and switch me to something else. And it's like a light switch went off and I go back to my normal self. It was crazy. I had just gotten a new, th uh, finally gotten a therapist to deal with the anxieties and everything I was dealing with and just processing everything that had happened to me. And we had to start therapy all over because I became a whole different person. He was like, I literally I'm back to square one. So it turns out I can't take Valium with all my medications. So that's what was making me not make any sense and feel suicidal and feel overly emotional. So that was just a lot. So I'm in a brand new job. I'm taking a pill that's making me unable to regulate my emotions and trying to navigate a new relationship and take care of myself and recover from a spinal surgery. And I go back to work three weeks after a spinal surgery when they say, no, 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 at least six weeks. Dumb, 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 dumb. Not my finest hours, but again, I was on the volume, so I couldn't really make sense. And so I've had to really forgive myself for that time because I have a lot of guilt and shame. But like my therapist said, you had the trauma of the heart attack, then you had the trauma of finding out you had a genetic disorder, then you had the trauma of a spinal surgery, and then a secondary trauma from the surgery of the inability to regulate because of the medication counteraction. He's like, it's a lot. It's a lot. So I've had to learn to give myself a lot of grace. And I've tried and I've done the best I can. So next week, we may have one more week with just me, because I think there's still a lot to talk about. But if not, it'll be a little bit with me and then a guest, but I don't know who it's going to be yet. So I'm procrastinating. <laughs> so I have a list. I just have to reach out to people. And sometimes I'm not the best about that, um, about giving people too much enough notice for things I tend to be last minute. Um, so yeah, that's what happened. And it's been a really interesting ride. Uh, just a lot to take in. And then, of course, a global pandemic a year later lucky. Isn't it fun to be alive and human? Isn't it crazy? It's just a lot to navigate. So I hope you're navigating. I hope you're finding your way through. This is a time of grief. It's a collective grief, but it is a grief. And I always tell people, grief sucks. I'm not going to try to go, uh, 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 like Brene Brown says, if your reply to somebody grieving starts with at least, don't say it. It sucks. When somebody's grandmother dies or something, I say, that sucks. And you know what? Do whatever you need to do to find comfort wherever you can find it. If it is, if you, even if it's the smallest little thing. So that's my advice to you. Find your comfort. Find the things that make you happy. Lean into those things. If you're having a rough day, lean into that too. We got to lean in. It's, the, it's sink or swim right now. And I hope you're all able to swim. If you're not, you're going to get there. You just got to keep going. You got you to gotta wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other and this shall pass. Trust me. I know a lot of us have been through a lot of stuff and you've just heard a lot about mine in the last four episodes. So we can get through this, but it's not always going to be easy. So I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're staying well. I'll talk to you next time.